Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, where I'm joined by Dr. Anirban Mahanti, and we're talking how to know when to sell. We talk about some of the recent news in the market, such as China's Evergrande collapse. We're talking about tapering and what that means, Facebook's CTO leaving, if interest rates will rise and what that means, and a whole host of other things. We conducted this interview live on the RASC YouTube page, where we also took some comments and some points of view from the audience. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. How are you going? How has your last week been? Oh, last week has been great. Um, a bit crazy, uh, you know, because we work on our uh, recommendations you know, that are going to go live October 1. So a bit crazy doing presentations, you know, or stock pitches as we call it. And uh, then, you know, working on the write-ups uh, before that, doing the research <laughs> to, you know, make, make you know, um, make sure that, you know, you're picking the right ones. So it's been a fun, busy week, but mm-hmm. yeah, nothing, nothing special. You know, we're in lockdown like you, so there's nothing much happening otherwise that I can comment on or report on. Um, how about you? We've had a bunch of really interesting interviews. So a few interviews that are coming up on the podcast. Um, I interviewed a, a woman by the name of Tanya de Jong, who is a, uh, she's founded six businesses and three charities. And she's got this really interesting backstory and she's focused on mental health, which is kind of prescient. And um, it's just been really interesting and good to chat to to, to her because she has insights. She's actually a qualified lawyer and was a semi-pro tennis player and and she's a, an opera singer. So she's just just a bizarre and wonderful person um all in one and it's it's just fascinating so i've um, just been chatting with really interesting people like that i had a few discussions with ceos and that type of thing this week um just small cap ceos so we're just working through them i don't know i find that sometimes interviews with ceos and management teams you can come away with less conviction um sometimes you can come away with a lot more and it's really hard to anticipate in advance i don't know if you ever had yeah. that kind of takeaway if it's been when i used to to do small caps um small caps aussie small caps i used to do a lot of interviews and things like that one of the things that i found here here's the thing right if a ceo is a really good salesperson you come across really impressed in that meeting right they'll basically be able they should be able to sell you anything (laughs) and in which case how do you um make a judgment out of it right so my take always with the CEO meetings was one of the primary reasons I wanted a CEO meeting uh, or CEO, CFO, someone uh, to, to meet with me is to basically just fill my holes in understanding the business. And this is because many, unless you're in an IPO, recent IPO here in on the ASX, right? You don't really have a report that describes what the business is. So you're kind of having to make out the business yeah. by looking at some past transcripts or going to the conference calls, but you still don't get a good, good picture. 
So after you've done your research, I figured that the best way to understand the business was from the horse's mouth. <laughs> and, uh, and that really, really kind of helped. But yes, I was always circumspect of the fact that, well, you know, they, if they're the best salesperson, the best salesperson is on the job, then they're going to sell you the, the company. So <laughs> do you... Did, did you ever come into or have you ever gone into an, a meeting and interview with the CEO very, like with a lot of conviction and then come away from that thing? No, this is just a deal breaker. The, my kind of gut feel was enough to try and completely just 180 that investment I did? Um, no. So, no? Uh, and that okay. has not happened to me largely because I'm a very um, a skeptical person to start off with, right? So I, uh, you know, it actually, you know, so maybe if you are like what, if you are at that position, maybe you're more open-minded, you know, so I'm saying what the, the position you took is more open-minded because I come, I will start off being very skeptical. And then if a, if a great salesperson actually gives me a good sales pitch, I'll actually probably be convinced that, hey, this is a good idea. So, you know, it depends on where you start and it, it's maybe being ultra positive is probably a good place to start than being, you know, skeptical. I've always been skeptical. Um, the other thing I found was, is even if you look at a person's track record, right? I mean, that's no, I mean, you know, if somebody was, has a successful track record of business, unless they've done it multiple number of times, really doesn't, you know, they've been successful in the past doesn't mean they're going to be successful again, right? I mean, mm. one thing worked out doesn't mean that the second one is going to work out. Yes, if they have been like, you know, they're like a, they're like a Bevan Slattery, then, you know, they maybe have some magic, <laughs> right? That's a different matter altogether, right? You know, so serial. So serial entrepreneur is different, but it's very difficult to make out otherwise. I don't, I, yeah, I found it good for plugging holes. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a, it's as a fact find it's also interesting but i feel like you, you like as you said you do need to have your um wits about you before you go in because if you don't then they could just pull the wool over your eyes so I, I i i'm the type of person that likes to i don't think you can personally i don't think you can truly understand a business um as well as you would absolutely want to before you buy i find that you often just discover things over time and um, so repeated meetings and or just not even meetings, just hearing and what they have to say, watching their webinars and whatever, seeing their consistency is actually um, a valid way to to kind of gauge their track record if they are, you know, as you say, new. Um, yeah. yeah, I often find it I often find it really interesting when we talk about like successful CEOs and managers because oftentimes we parade the person that is super successful with one idea, and yes. they, you know, they could. A lot of that is, I'd say a lot of it is circumstance. Um, and so, or it can be circumstance, probably the right way to frame it. So sometimes, you know, that's going to happen and we can't pay too much attention to any one kind of strategy or kind of vision roadmap. Um, okay. That repeated success is, is is really important. And like Bevan Slattery's had that, right? So he's got like Superloop, yeah. Next DC, Sport of Megaloop, all that stuff. Like it's, it's, um, he's in yeah. yeah, like, I mean, it's really hard and it's it's all in adjacent areas, but I mean, it's really different things, right? So there's Superloop, Megaport, as you said, Next DC, they're all kind of networking sort of things, but they're not necessarily the same thing, right? Mm. Um, and then, in, and then has also got investments in other areas that he makes, right? And what we need to remember there is that, I guess, 
what might look like a big position in a small company is probably peanuts <laughs> uh, for, for Mr. Slattery because, I mean, you know, he can't afford to, you know, put his money in multiple bets, which is again, something very interesting. So, yeah, but yeah, I a, admire making Slattery. Making a few thousand, he's making maybe a few million. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, admire, I admire Slattery. I mean, Slattery is really like the sort of the, you know, the Elon Musk equivalent in Australia, right? I mean, there are very few people who have done that many number of gigs uh, in different areas. So yeah, mm. I admire him. Hey, um, before we get to the formal topics, which are going to include things like when when we sell, why we sell, talking about some topical things like um, tapering and what have you, um, and also how to identify, you know, winners in growth industries. Um people will probably see that you've got a t-shirt on there that looks interesting and you were telling me today that it's a very special day and i'm bringing this up because you brought up <laughs> elon musk oh it's a special day because you know so I, this is uh, my uh, cybertruck t-shirt i have a thing i have to buy something from tesla every quarter so you know uh, because i didn't make a big purchase this you know this quarter by you know, i didn't buy a buy a powerwall or something so i bought a t-shirt from them um, so I put it on actually today for for our uh, for our um, uh, podcast recording, and and uh, those people who know, so this is a shout out to Tom Richardson. He used to work with me, um, and now he's a reporter at um, AFR, so Australian Financial Review. Um, he made me my coffee mug, which uh, which says which basically has got an Elon Musk tweet on it, which says, "I'm considering taking Tesla private at." 20 funding secure. This is the famous funding secure tweet yeah. he made. You know, that was really funny that he made it for made this. Uh, and I, I regularly have coffee in this because I am so happy that the company did not go <laughs> private at 420. This is before the split. <laughs> so so uh, I have coffee on this and I just, you know, laugh at my good fortune and, and, uh, and that, you know, I enjoy it. And I remember Tom every time I have this. Um, yeah, I was happy because, uh, you know, I had this, I had these two Elon Musk things on me to start. And then I got this email that said my Starlink, uh, can be shipped within three days. Uh, or if I mm -hmm. want it sooner, then I can pay for it now, which I just did before we started recording. And I'm excited about that because, you know, um, internet here is really horrible because, um, you know, the, the NBN got botched up. Uh, to the point where basically it is, um, you know, it's fi fiber to the curb. And then from the curb, it basically depends on what sort of copper wire you've got. I can't get more than 20 Mbps here. So the NBN site would suggest that I can get 100 Mbps, but I can't. Mm. And that's the download. Uh, I can get maximum maybe 25. And I actually pay, you know, I actually can maximum get 28. And to get the privilege of 28, I actually pay for 60. So I pay at the 60 slab or whatever, the 50 slab, so that I can eke out a little bit more. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the reason I'm excited about, uh, about Starlink is that potentially I would be able to get maybe you know, 100, 200 uh, you know, as downloads. And that should only increase over time as they put more satellites up. And mm -hmm. I should be able to get maybe 50, 60 as upload. That changes the game for, if you're doing gaming, it'll change the game for gaming. Uh, but it'll change the game for many of my, you know, sloppy internet connection issues that I have. You know, and eventually maybe I can disconnect. Uh, I can say bye bye to my NBN connection. So, uh, uh, yeah. So you know, a little trial for uh, for a few months, and maybe bye bye NBN. Mm. So just for those people who don't know, Starlink uh, satellites um, put in put into space that some people can see. They say. 
from with their naked eye just by looking up at the stars. And as someone who gazes at the stars and I have my telescope right here beside me, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because they've had to make changes around how kind of the light reflects off the satellites as they pass by. But I've also put down a deposit because I think the way that you get a Starlink uh, kind of router is that you have to pay, well, they ask you to pay an upfront deposit and then they say when it's available in your area, then you can pay the full freight, right? Is that how it works? Because that's what I've done. I think I've paid $130 or something. That's right. Yeah. And um, yeah, you pay a deposit, and yeah, yeah, and then you see right now I'm getting my internet connection is unstable. <laughs> yeah. Ironic, yeah. so uh, ironic. Uh, and I can see on Twitter that people are you know, saying, "Oh, but in Brisbane we get this much, and you know that much." Well, I don't get that much. If I did, I wouldn't order it. I'm not dumb, <laughs> but you know, my internet connection is literally unstable at this very moment <laughs> so um yeah yeah uh, yeah so yeah <laughs> I, I i think you can, you can get high speed nbn if you're in in a proper metro where metro is probably you know inner city um i am not really in inner city i mean you know near in the Cam camden area which is like 60 70 kilometers from the city we definitely don't get in my previous place in Campbelltown too i did not get i could hardly get 30 mbps um yeah so. yeah right i am um... I get reasonable internet, but I figured this is one of these things where as investors, I like to just keep tabs on what's going on. And I think if I can get it and try it out, see how it, see how it impacts my life, maybe then I can use that as kind of like a, an inference of what it could be doing for other people and other businesses, not even here in Australia, but around the world. And so for me, it's kind of like a low cost test of if, you know, Starlink is actually a valid way of getting internet and reliable, like low ping, um, all those things, then why wouldn't more people do that and switch away from other devices? And, and what does that bring for, for certain companies and opportunities in that respect? So really interesting. I'm keen to know how it goes. So be sure to let me know. In terms of uh, news topics today, mate, one of the things that you brought up um, before we hit record is um, tapering might happen sooner than people think. So maybe you can just kind of back this out a bit for us. Yeah. So you know the the Federal Reserve has a you know bunch of Federal Reserve governors, so that the regional governors that you know make up the Federal Reserve, and they they all um, make what's called a dot plot, which basically is a prediction of where they think the interest rate is going to be in the future. And it looks like what's happening is that you know there's now anticipation that some number of people, at least half of them, probably. Think that there's going to be an increase probably later in uh, in 2022, right? Which is a little bit earlier than I guess anticipated. So I think the the what I think the Federal Reserve basically is saying is that the recovery has happened, and according to uh, Powell, the job recovery has also happened. While it's not as low as it was pre-pandemic, they think that the job recovery has mostly played out. And now there's inflation, which is also running hotter than they had expected, but they expect it to cool down. Uh, which means that it's now uh, time to start taking away that punch bowl. Uh, so nothing unexpected here, but I think, you know, a little bit of movement, you know, towards, so I, I guess in my, my only takeaway was at the, during, when a crisis is unfolding, even, and these are like predictions, right? And their predictions are just good as my predictions or your predictions, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so because, you know, nobody's very good making predictions but when people are making predictions at the depths of despair then you 
tend to be pessimistic, right? And when you're out of the depths of despair, you tend to be optimistic and reflected and were thinking about the interest rates, right? Or you should have been in the past. What has happened is basically people were thinking interest rates are not going to be increased until like 2023. Now they're thinking 2022, right? So it's the optimism that's coming back into play. Um, so it does, what does it mean? I think there's a couple of things here to keep an eye on. If the, the trajectory of the interest rate is really what matters, right? Whether the interest rate is 0.5% or really 1%, does it really matter? Probably not, right? But it would matter if it starts being 3% or 4%, right? And um, that's something to keep an eye on. That's going to impact um, valuation of growth stocks, especially because a lot of their value is in, in sort of the terminal value, right? And then the interest, the discount rate plays a big role, which is, indirectly related to the uh, risk-free rate as decided by the Fed. Uh, now, when I'm saying Fed, you can replace the word Fed with any other uh, reserve bank, which has uh, you know, independent, um, if you've got an independent monetary policy and you've got an independent currency, then you can set your own uh, interest rate and decide sort of, you know, the level of liquidity in the market. They're also saying that you're going to reduce some of the bond, bond buying and things like that, uh, or start tapering down. So, um, overall, I think something to keep an eye on. I mean, what what I think surprised me a little bit is that generally when you say that the interest rate is actually going to go up sooner than anticipated, you think the market would react negatively. The market actually reacted positively. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe the takeaway here is the market loves to have uh, certainty than uncertainty. So, you know, certainty, okay, it's going to go up. And more people are saying this is good news. Combine that with the fact that the economy is actually doing okay uh, is good news. Combine that with the fact that, you know, uh, inflation is probably not going to run as hot maybe in the future is also good news. Uh, mm. And then there's some, you know, more or less full employment happening is also good news. So there's a lot of good news there um, with some of so That was my take really on it. Nothing special, but I think something to keep an eye on. I think it's been a give and take, right? Like, um, interest rates do impact asset valuations they have for 30 years, I think. That's like been one of the massive drivers of, of the stock market, um, even bond prices, obviously. So um, the Fed, I just reading an article from CNBC, the Fed um, sees GDP rising to 5.9% this year and uh, or just 5.9%, sorry, compared to 7%, which is what they forecast just a few months ago. In 22, however, that 2022, they see growth at 3.8% compared to the 33 that they previously forecast for. Um, and they also see inflation stronger than the, the previous pr- predictions. So I guess just moving ahead of the curve on that. And um, yeah, I mean, we were talked about growth stocks being kind of a, maybe a potential loser from the compression of that terminal value um, because the, the, the cash flows that we discount long into the future had to be discounted more effectively because the discount rate goes up. Um, but I guess, does it really impact the way you invest in terms of like, I know people might, might put you in the, the box of growth investor, but does it actually impact you in that way? Like, do you change the process? Or? No, so uh, it, it, I don't really. Like, I mean, I, I do think about valuation. Valuation is sort of the last thing I think about when I'm looking at a, when I'm looking at a company. Valuation is my last consideration. It's like really bottom at the bottom of the rung consideration for me because I'm looking at, I want to look at disruptive companies. I want to look at companies that change the game. And when the game is being changed, a lot can happen. So um, I don't really think about valuation until like I'm sort of checkboxed all the other things. Um, the only thing I would say is that, look, this is maybe a more general and maybe I'm veering off topic here. 
I don't think the market is overly expensive, right? And that's, you know, and I don't think it's overly expensive. But I'm just saying, like, if you look at the, the big tech, then they don't look overly expensive, right? And there are pockets of the market. There are pockets of the market in every market, <laughs> which is expensive. And one of the things I've found is that sometimes it's useful to look outside those pockets of expensive things, right? So, is Moderna worth whatever $100 billion plus, right? I mean, a good question to ask. It's an innovative question, a company which has brought forward, mm. you know, an innovative drug platform. Is it worth that much, right? And, and there's a lot of, lot of things baked into it. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, you could make an argument that there are some pockets where things look expensive. Then you can ask the same question for something like Tesla uh, and say, is it, is it worth that much, right? But sometimes you can look a little bit outside of those obvious boxes and look at other things that people are probably not thinking about. So that, that might be something to think about is, are there other sort of ideas that you can look for when you're investing? Um, but yeah, I mean, generally, if, I'm in, if I like a company, I don't really care that much about, about what the Fed is doing or not doing because mm. those companies are probably going to be fine irrespective of the Fed. It was like um, during COVID, I think the, the game plan for a lot of investors during COVID was if you have companies that have a lot of cash, you know, so their financial leverage really isn't that dire. They're wide, you know, my business is really competitively advantaged, um, have good aligned management teams, like sensible management teams. That's really all you can, you can hope for at the end of the day, because unless you move into um, risk off assets so you sell positions in order to move to things that benefit from you know interest rate or inflation linked uh, coupons um, there's really kind of no reprieve you could go to term deposits which would could be a costly decision at the worst possible time so there are a lot of things about it that basically you know mean that it's probably still the best you're going to get is having good companies in for the long term at least good companies um, in the stock market, uh, in your portfolio. Um, another thing that was interesting, just from um, a Fed perspective, is um, the move or the considerations around digital currencies. So um, there's been a lot of stuff on Twitter yeah. the last week, in fact, too, which is really interesting. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, I mean, they're considering basically, you know, whether or not they should have issue a digital dollar, right? And what I think is interesting that is issuing a digital currency is one thing, but, you know, is the rails around that digital currency that matter, right? It's, when I say rails, what I mean is you can issue a digital currency, but the digital currency need to, needs to propagate <laughs> quickly. There's no advantage uh, otherwise because, I mean, technically we have digital currency, if you think about it, right? So if you've got Apple Pay, if you've got Google Pay, if you've got, you know, touch and go, then, well, that is digital money movement that's already happening, right? Those, you know, you're not physically moving, moving cash. Um, so it's, to me, it's more of a rails question. If, if the infrastructure um, is there to support digital currencies all in, then it'll allow for, you know, quick settlement of funds, uh, almost instantaneous transfer, like, you know, like something like OSCO that we've got here, which allows for instantaneous fund transfer between certain banks if they participate in OSCO. Those sort of things can be very, very useful. Um, to me, it seems like if that happens, well, you know, uh, one of the big things about crypto and other 
the digital currencies is is being attacked here, right? Um, you know, if, and potentially it can be also cross border, smooth cross border movement of um, of funds if you have digital sort of assets in that sense. Um, if the rails exist, that's that's what I thought. But, but otherwise, you know, um, I know that you know it, it's been talked about here as well in Australia and other places that are talking about going digital. So, um, but reserve banks worldwide tend to be um, tend to thoughtful and deliberate in their movement, right? So they're not going to go into anything quickly, <laughs> which mm. that remains a question as to seeing as to when this happens. Mm. There's been, there was a great Bloomberg interview um, with Vitalik Buterin, who's the kind of the guy behind Ethereum. Um, and because there's been a lot of moves in this respect lately, like um, Jack Dorsey from uh, the Twitter and Square fame, um, we've seen PayPal make a move into this. Um, then there are heaps of innovative startups as well that are looking to break this market. So um, it's a really interesting thing. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I am, I've interviewed a lot of pretty high profile um, crypto investors and, and the like. And um, from my, uh, like from my perspective, it probably makes sense to have a small allocation of crypto assets if you do think that that is, um, you know, the way of the future. And to be honest, I think it is too, but it's like you said, I guess it's the rails, right? It's the blockchain underlies it. And um, one of the things that I took away from that interview with um, Buterin was that basically, even if PayPal, which owns shares in or Square or whoever come out with their own um, version of a crypto asset, it's still kind of held on a ledger that's controlled, um, like a private ledger somewhere. And so, yeah, it might be instant. It might have all of the, the safe, it might have all of the kind of the, the usual features from a consumer perspective in terms of instant transfers and what have you. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's whether or not it's, it's truly trustless. And so if there's something like the Fed embraces something like this, um, then that is really a game changer um, because that brings the two worlds closer together. So that's going to be something interesting to watch. Um, I probably would add um, an extra thing on here, which is something that I've been asked about a lot this week, which is basically what's going on in Chinese property development. Um, I've done a few live chats this week and, you know, they're all asking basically is what's happening in China and the Chinese property development market um, something that will boil over into another global financial crisis? And the more I read about this, the more it seems the answer is no, because many of these moves seem to have been kind of set in motion quite a long time ago. And this is an instance of a very kind of lower quality property developer amongst the stack that um, you know, we're just pulling this kind of this one out as an example of, you know, what could go wrong, but it doesn't seem to be um, the type of thing that can ripple over because it's asset backed and, and, and the like. With that, what, how have you seen this playing out? Yeah, so I don't think this is like another Lehman moment, but, you know, maybe I have a slightly different view. So this is this this Evergrande thing. They, they're probably the, the largest or the second largest property developer in the world. They're also the most indebted property. I think something like 300, 400 billion or something like that is owed by them. And I think the problem is, uh, so this is how these things spiral, right? So these guys build residential properties, as an, let's use say as an example, right? So let's say they're building a big tower in Hong Kong. And a bunch of people are going to be buying into that 
tower. So they're going to be paying deposits. Those deposits are then bank guaranteed. So the consumer is taking the loan from the bank. The bank is then, you know, giving them the money. That money is then flowing to Evergrande. And now that there's this doubt, or there was this doubt, I think Evergrande has made a payment that they couldn't make their coupon payments, which is basically payments on their debt. Then that, that company basically goes into default. If that company goes into default and it goes bankrupt, then what do you do? Right. So if the banks stop lending money, then the consumers don't have the money to pay Evergrande. If Evergrande doesn't have the money coming in from new projects, it actually can't make payments to its suppliers and on its debt. That's the problem they have gotten into. That's the pickle they are in, right? And I think what happened is this basically example case of where basically if you took on too much debt, the only way to further get out of it was to build even more, <laughs> create more properties, create more, more work so that you can get more cash flow coming in. But that meant taking on more debt as well. And, and so can there be a ripple effect? So ripple effect could be that if a bunch of properties stop um, uh, or they do fire sale on some properties, which means they take you know, write downs, that write down then flows through to the banks who have basically a property using the property as guarantee, right? To provide the loans that happens, that can have a ripple effect on, on the Chinese market. If the Chinese market, the property market then pulls, um, um, slows down that has then you know Chinese property market then the, you know basically it's construction industry the construction industry's demand goes down that has an impact on raw materials which then has a flow on effect effect on things like I mean I don't know prices and stuff is are down significantly from their peaks right so it there can be peak but you know um there'll be a bailout or not maybe right people I think what has happened is the GFC has maybe taught governments a lesson <laughs> maybe the wrong lesson to some extent which is you don't want it to happen because if it happens, you know, bailing out is better than letting it happen because if it if it happens, then it's worse. But the converse is also true. If everybody knows that they're going to be bailed out, <laughs> then nobody's going to be disciplined, right? Mm. So then you've got more bailouts to do. Eventually, somebody's going to pay for it, right? So, I mean, I don't know. So I don't think it's a big deal, but I think it's, it's some deal. Mm. I think... Um... Yeah, so about $300 billion in property um, with about $220 billion, uh, so $300 billion in debt with $220 billion of um, property basically underlying it. I think one of the key distinctions that I come across, and there was in an article that you sent through, but also some other stuff that I was reading, is that oh, there's two key differences. I guess one is that, um, first of all, people have seen this coming because because it has been indebted, it hasn't got this debt overnight. People have seen this coming, and um, based on what the the Chinese regulation uh, regulators and and the government doing is basically trying to increase in, increase housing affordability, but also trying to really kind of have strict oversight of what's getting done and where. And so um, it's been very kind of like under the microscope for a long time. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is that um, you know during the GFC, basically there was like contagion and ripple effects and when it's when the price of property in china is um going up because it's in so demand so much demand um the actual value of the assets that they have should shouldn't fall away too too much so in terms of the land it should be pretty you know pretty reliable in terms of its valuation and, and what it's actually going to be sold for um, whereas you look at like CDOs and, and those types of synthetic products during the GFC, um, there's, a, there's a bit of difference there in terms of that spreading over and 
things that were supposedly, you know, AAA rated are now non-investment grade. You know, that's a big difference. Um, I mean, who knows what happens from here? But what I will say is that there, you know, I was reading some other reports from the likes of Platinum, uh, Platinum Asset Management, which I know is is um, pretty heavily focused in China. And they're effectively saying that, you know, it's been the case for a while. The governments want to increase housing affordability because they have many kind of bold ambitions for younger people in particular getting into the property market in China. And there's, there's even instances where, um, you know, they're trying to develop so much in certain areas that um, new houses, brand new houses um, are selling far below kind of what the equivalent house is already selling across the road and um, or has sold across the road. Um, because they're just trying to roll out so many new, they're unlocking so much land at the same time because they need the housing. And then the final thing on that was, which I thought was interesting, is they're doing a lot of lotteries for housing in China in terms of trying to get people into the market. There's so much demand that they basically just have to go into a lottery and then they get picked uh, randomly. They have to kind of decide there and then which which apartment they want if they're they're successful in the lottery. So I think there's still a lot of underlying demand. I think it's um, slightly different. I, I mean... For me, as a takeaway from this as an investor, it's not that I'm anti-China. It's just that I don't need to invest there directly and I don't need to invest in property development or anything that's really associated with that. So that's kind of, we come back to the point on tapering before. You can protect yourself and your portfolio for the long term, I think, pretty reasonably. Like, sure, you'll have volatility, but you can protect yourself pretty well just by being sensible in what you own and why you own it. That's my kind of takeaway. Um, in the okay. short term, yeah, I'm happy to be guided by um, kind of the, the others that, that do actively invest in China and monitor the situation very closely. Um, there's one more thing that we wanted to talk about before we get to the reasons why we sell positions. And the, one of those is um, Facebook CTO leaving, been at the company 13 years, being replaced by another CTO who has plenty of experience too. So I don't know what you made of this. I own Facebook shares I'm not too worried, to be honest, but um, you may have a different perspective. I know we kind of differ a little bit on Facebook. No, but... I don't really. I mean, hmm. yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I think like Facebook is, is a fine I own it. I used to own it. Um, I don't own it anymore. I, mean, I have maybe. Uh, as I say, having moral issues with companies is not a good idea. Uh, it's not good for investment. <laughs> uh, but uh, that is, I think it's what I actually thought was interesting about this move is the person taking over is actually the person who's responsible for hardware. So this is a software company, uh, basically an advertising company, if you think about it, that is putting somebody who is um, hardware focused in charge of the, as, as chief technology officer. So I don't know what I can take away from that. No. Um, why not put somebody who's responsible for your ad business, somebody who's responsible for something else? Uh, in charge instead. So I, th I thought that was, you know, maybe it's just a messaging that they're trying to do that, uh, you know, maybe AR and VR and all those things around Oculus is um, is important. And maybe that's the messaging here, um, you know, or metaverse or whatever um, uh, Zuckerberg likes to call it. Um, so I thought that part was interesting. People leave for all sorts of reasons. 13 years is a long time, right? I mean, 13 years at a fast growing company is going to suck blood out of you. So it's, and you know, and if you're not the founder, I, there's every reason for you to leave. Mm. I think um, when he joined, it had a $15 billion market or valuation at Facebook, and now it's over a trillion. So, I mean, I think one of the comments that I saw was that 
you know, maybe it's because moving into a part-time role, which is when I think when a lot of key stakeholders remove themselves from businesses, that's kind of the politically correct way and right way to do it by long-term shareholders. But um, he's probably, you know, made a lot of money. Like you said, he's kind of invested a lot and now it's time for him just to move on. Um, and that's fair. And when you pay, when you're a company like Facebook, you can afford to pay engineers, um, you know, very, very generous salaries. And not only that, you can pay many of them. So it's not just paying one or two, you can get a lot of them. And so you have yeah. a lot on the bench when, when one wants to come off, wants to be substituted off, you can, yeah. um, you can do that. So we just had some comments on the live thread here. Julian said, um, my ears have been enjoying your new microphone doc. So that's interesting. Ah. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. <laughs> Lachlan says, so basically Evergrande is a Ponzi scheme, question mark. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, uh, we could say the same thing with Australian property too. It's a pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> every, every property investment ultimately is a pyramid. <laughs> if the property is going up. You can think of it as a pyramid. Okay, now now watch the haters come by. <laughs> so here's an acknowledgement about uh, um, the the microphone here, right? This microphone was kindly provided by Owen uh, of Rask fame, and I actually love it because it actually gives a good voice. <laughs> yeah, I actually don't, and I I've actually got mine up there. I should probably get it out. I've been a sucker for these AirPods for a while. Um, but then we got some more comments here. So we've got, oh, and by the way, Rode, Rode is the microphone, like that wonderful Australian business. Um, Josh says, Ashmore, BlackRock, UBS, and HSBC own around $1.3 billion of Evergrande bonds, according to Bloomberg. So there's US exposure to this, hence the idea of contagion. Yeah, which is fair. Um, yeah. A lot of the debt is denominated in US dollars. So um, that's, a, that's a risk too, right? With, with when you have, um, emerging market currencies and you have the volatility in the currency. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the, you know, the bond market is, and the, the thing that people forget is the bond market is what, like, you know, 10 times the size of the stock market. So the bond market is huge and that's how sort of stuff can flow over. But, but again, yeah, $300 billion of debt overall in the grand scheme of things where we have trillions and hundreds of trillions of dollars of debt is probably small, but yeah, but that is, that's a good point. Agreed. Mm. Julian um, then commented again and says, Facebook is undoubtedly a great business, but has ick factor for me, which is probably what I think you've talked about this in the past too. And I think that's something that a lot of people have commented on. You know, there's been some big things over the years with privacy, Cambridge Analytica, um, many different things over the years that have kind of called into question Facebook's ambitions, including its own cryptocurrency. So I think yeah, that's my thing. My thing with Facebook is, you know, like the fact that it's a trillion dollar business, which is basically an app, is what makes me worry. Because if the app ecosystem is to shift, right, yeah. you know, uh, various regulators are trying to break ecosystem. That is actually bad. <laughs> Just equally bad for the owners of the ecosystem as it is bad for an app itself, right? Um, so that's sort of what I, you know, it doesn't control the, I guess, it doesn't have layers that it can control. So it's trying to do that with Oculus and things like that. I don't know how successful it would be. People, it's a very difficult uh, transition for a company which sells stuff for free. Uh, let me put this in air quotes free uh, and then get them to buy hardware from you, which is not free because uh, they're not used to buying stuff for free. So, uh, but not used to paying for stuff, right? So that's, that's the, yeah, I think that that's been my thing. I've been you know, wrong about it, but from where I sold, I think Facebook has doubled. Um, but yeah, that's okay. 
don't um, don't take your uh, confirmation bias from price or your signals oh, from John. price. Yeah, I have to. I have to. That's the only. That's <laughs> the only way I'm going to feel regret. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. I have no regret about it. <laughs> and I think I think that's fair too. Like another criticism is obviously like the shift away from the Facebook.com app and Messenger towards uh, WhatsApp and Instagram, and it not being as kind of not necessarily transparent, but as obvious how those businesses are going and kind of the big picture opportunities there. But um, yeah, it's it, they're all fair criticisms. Um, Henry just did say, get the mic out. Oh, and your voice has been a little scratchy lately. Well, I've got the mic out. Unfortunately, I can't connect it to a live chat, but I will next week, Henry. So thanks for the, thanks for the nudge. Um, okay, mate, so wonderful. Let's move on to um, some of the key talking points. So we've got a couple more, which we'll cover off briefly. Um, it's basically this question around when do you sell a position? Because we talk a lot about um, buying companies, exciting companies. Um, we talk about you know all these different things um, around kind of the entry, maybe even the holding, but we don't talk much about when to exit. And I'm really keen. I know you've penciled um, something or penned something, I should say, um, for Seven Investing on this. So maybe you can just share a bit of that with us. So my my article and actually all the articles of my colleagues they're all uh, they're not behind the paywall so they're the public facing so you can actually access them. Um, each person has their own take. So uh, my take on selling is I sell basically my selling need is driven by I need the money, right? And that's really the only driver really behind. So it's not that I am actively looking at my positions. I'm not doing active management. I call my selling reactive. Um, I need the funds because I probably want to invest in something or I need the funds to, you know, maybe, you know, pay down for a house deposit or something like that. But usually I only invest stuff in the market that I don't need for a long, long time. So typically it would mean one of those things, some, there's some rare event has happened that means I need cash or that there's another company that I really like that I want to buy, but I don't have funds to buy, or I've got a small position and I can't increase my position. The problem is I actually detest making this move of selling something and buying something because I need to now get two decisions right. And um, I really, really detest. I try to keep that too. And I remind myself that every time you do that, your chance of being overall correct actually goes down uh, because you're making two back-to-back -back decisions, right? So 50% probability of getting right, then you effectively, if you think of them as independent, then they become like you know 25% probability of getting them both right, um, which basically reduces the chance of being correct. Um, so I, but that's probably my number one reason to sell is I need the cash. And then what I do really is I just look at, because I keep track of what my businesses are doing, I basically look at the one that is the weakest I don't like, or have small position that I had taken, I call it my position so that I'm gonna watch it and I never really added to it. Those are the ones that go. Uh, businesses that I have not followed closely and I am not really keen on it. So basically stuff that I'm not interested in the ones other first ones to go. Above that would be businesses that I've held for many years that are underperforming. And I'm again, very hesitant to sell them because unless there's really good reason, sometimes businesses underperform stock price-wise, as you said, don't take a cue from the stock price for a long time uh, and then can outperform. Sometimes businesses have execution issues that you know roll on for several quarters and then sort of fix themselves because they have good management teams. So it's just hard, but yeah. So, but I would have an order where you know I'll start. I'll, I'll call my speculative positions first, then I'll call uh, businesses I'm not interested in. So, like you know, Facebook would be in that. I'm not interested in following Facebook, so that's a good business for me to actually 
get rid of from my portfolio. That doesn't mean that it's not going to do well, but you know, it's it's just something that I'm not really interested in. So that's another one uh, to consider. Um, and, and then, of course, businesses that might be, you know, struggling are another ones, uh, the other one to consider. So that's sort of my self-philosophy. It's not much of a philosophy. It's just, it's it, the only key thing I take away is reactive. It's not proactive. So I'm not proactively managing my portfolio. It's interesting that you say, I've never heard that before around companies that you actually want to follow. Like, I don't really, I've never really heard anyone articulate that in, in a way that says, I sell positions if I just know I'm no longer like that's where not what I want to do or someone I want to follow. Like Facebook's a really interesting example. Um, I've got one more question for you, but I just want to call out this tweet because I wrote about this not too long ago for our Raskin Invest Service. And uh, it was a tweet from Joe Mega and it comes from um, a Bank of America um, manager survey. And the tweet was, and Joe's got the screenshot, what best describes your investment time horizon at this moment? And the weighted average time horizon was um, 7.4 months. But um, I think a few of them um, only had, uh, so, no, sorry, so here we go. Yeah, so the weighted average was 7.4 months. Um, of those surveyed, 47 said they hold stocks for on average less than three months. And six, six fund managers responded and said, we don't know what our time horizon is. <laughs> um, so so it's, it's a really interesting one because um, yeah, I mean, and what it means is if you take the median there, 7.4 months, it's effectively saying when fund managers and the professionals that we pay or some people pay are investing only six months or seven months ahead of time, there's a time arbitrage there effectively and a behavioral arbitrage. And that just comes back to what we know about being individual investors. We don't have constraints like window dressing, showing up for the quarterly reviews, um, doing the webinars and all that sort of stuff. We can kind of run our own race, which is why you're comment was really interesting the one question i have for you is i was reading your article and one thing that people tend to do is they tend to curate their portfolio so they are they are more active and you've said here that you know some people sell because a position is air quotes too large and you said your largest position is 25 percent of the entire stock portfolio and you're okay with that but some people wouldn't be and you said it's like a personal decision how would like at what level would it become uncomfortable for you yeah so, like, yeah, so like, yeah, so the largest position is Tesla, and you know, like, it's. I think it's yeah, investing is very personal, right? I mean, I feel I, I sold some when we you know bought this house. I sold some to pay the deposit, and I felt very good about it. And I almost thought I should name the house Musk. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but uh, look, I think it's okay. Like, I understand that company, and I'm fine with it. I understand the volatility that comes with it. But I get it. I get what they're doing, right? Which is, which is again, this you know, this point that you made about. So I'm okay with that. An active manager would would look at 10% position and then have to call because you know you can't go back to your clients and say, "Oh, I've got a 20% position." But an individual investor can, as long as they understand, right? Uh, most people would say that you know, you know, 15% probably is is a lot, and um, yeah. But I feel com- as long as I feel comfortable about it, it's okay. It's uh, you know. It's fine. And the it here's the thing though, right? What I do is I let positions organically grow. So like, you know, I've in the only time I've sold is I think last year when, you know, a lot yeah, last year when, when we were looking to buy the house, I sold some. Um but otherwise I've I've never sold, right? And so my time horizon is not that seven months. It's, you know, my time horizon is eight years, ten years, you know, my positions are that long. Mm. 
I just let the compounding do the thing for me and I just wait. <laughs> because, you know, if if a 10-bagger doubles, that's a 20-bagger, <laughs> right? That's that's where the magic happens, right? And as I, I tell everyone that, you know, in the first five years, you don't notice it. Between the year five and year 10 is when you start noticing things. And then from tier, year 10 onwards, it's magic. <laughs> Because you could just be sitting on your bum doing nothing. And every, you know, year you could be making five years worth of like salary (laughs) because of the magic of compounding. So Mm. uh, compounding is magical. You just have to let it happen, (laughs) which is what you were, you know, the point you were making is that, you know, that's the biggest advantage we as individual investors have. Right. So, yeah, uh, if you can, if you can find, I, I don't have any study to back this up, but basically my belief is that, if you can find companies that have very high rates of returns on invested capital, eventually your portfolio, you know, not it won't happen immediately and it will not be in a straight line, but over say 10 years, eventually your returns should come close to mirroring kind of the, the com- ongoing compounding of that business, provided that you know, everything else, this is that old, is it uh, Ceteris Parabi, that economic theory, I don't know how to pronounce that correctly, but basically holding all other things equal all the same, what would happen? Which you know that never happens in reality. But if they if they were the same, if your business is constantly compounding and growing its capital, eventually people will, you know, pay a higher price for that because the earnings will go higher, the dividends will go higher, the revenue will go higher, and so that is basically where I kind of put my yardstick. If I can buy companies that are compounding at 20, 30, 40 percent a year, I'm sure that's before tax. Then eventually my returns should be double digit as well. But it takes a long time to recognize that. And I think that's the key thing that many, most investors miss is you have to give it time. Otherwise, that doesn't work. Um, so, th- I mean, it, you can still make money be- be investing in sentiment, you know, sh- stretching valuations. We've seen a lot of that in the last 10 years. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair and reasonable. Um, I've got – so I did a – piece on this recently 10 reasons that investors sell so not 10 reasons that i sell but 10 reasons investors sell and rather than go like there's like intrinsic valuation opportunity cost all that sort of stuff tax purposes some you know how many times have we had ceos say they need to sell this their stock for tax purposes um then there's obviously like the fear and greed element um many people use things like a director selling down as a signal to sell um basically some people just hit a goal like a retirement goal um, but the two that I want to call out is probably the two that make the most sense to me. They're kind of like my truths. And um, the first one is that it's being more prescriptive. So this comes from basically the financial planning side of me, which is many people aren't deliberate when they invest. They are kind of, they, they think about investing as a way to collect assets. So I wrote about this recently as people being collectors, they just kind of collect shares, they collect properties, they collect bars of gold, but whatever, paintings, whatever you're into. And that is that works because you're collecting assets. As long as you're collecting assets that go up in value, you're going to have more money. That's a pretty simple thing. And I think for beginners, where beginner investors definitely overthink it. So just getting started is basically the best advice for them, for sure. But over time, as your portfolio grows, um, and maybe if you're not a professional investor like we are, maybe the best thing for you is to have a plan that says, I'm going to invest X amount of money in the stock market, X amount of money outside of the stock market. And then if things go 
beyond that range, like reasonably, say 10% beyond my allocation to, to the stock market, then I might consider trimming my lowest conviction positions and rebalancing. So I think what most or many studies show, so there's one from Vanguard, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it actually shows that the strategic asset allocation piece around an entire portfolio, so not just stocks, I think about 90% from a like an indexed portfolio, um, 90% of the um, returns are basically explained by strategic asset allocation. So not tactical short-term moves, but longer-term decisions like how much bonds, how much shares. Um, so I think that's a valid point to make. If you are going to sell, you may have a plan in place to sell. And that discipline might actually work for you. And you know, it could be as simple as, I only want 20 positions in my portfolio because that's intellectually, that's all I can handle. I've done some research, that's fine. So that's a that's a plan as well. The other thing is, and I think this applies to anything that we buy, not necessarily just shares or whatever. It's actually just having a thesis, just a, something that you've written down. Um, and if it's well-rounded, you can rely on that in the future. It's basically, why am I owning something? And if that why is no longer true, you know, if it's Tesla, I think it's going to, you know, captivate the world with electric vehicles, or autonomous vehicles, and we're going to, most people are going to have power walls on the wall. If that doesn't happen, if that's not happening for one or two years in a row, that would be an example of maybe then you start to question that thesis. And so you and I are very fortunate, mate, because we get to write down our theses. You know, we get, we have to, it's our job. <laughs> but um, a lot of people don't do that. So I think as a discipline, that's a really important thing to get in the habit of. And then, um, you know, we get, I, I'm rambled, but basically on top of that, you get the find and technique. And if you write it down, you poke holes in your own work and you go back to the drawing board and et cetera, et cetera. So thesis break and I guess the top-down portfolio constraints are, I think, valid reasons to sell. That's kind of my philosophy on it. I love Julian, uh, I was going to say that, you know, um, journaling is a great idea. That's what Owen just suggested. You know, you should, you know, you actually, you'd be amazed how much journaling helps. So. Julian says, um, I like Doc's approach of thinking about portfolio percentage in terms of percentage of capital outlaid, then letting them run. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's just to highlight that. What I do is I have a set of amount of capital that I have personally put the cash. I, I try not to put more than 5% in any company and then let, let them run. Yeah, right. So would you, if you had 5% to put in a company, would you put 5% in in one go or would you kind of do that over a few months or how do you think so what works? i do i so i have a running tally of how much cash i have put into my brokerage accounts right and i would not put more than five percent of that amount into any position <laughs> that sort of like so you're saying over the, the lifetime of you putting money in or just yeah recently <laughs> yeah right okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's like you know i don't want to put more than five percent of the total right so if it's 100k then five percent of that is that's how much a position is going to get capital from me and then I can let it run, right? And it can keep running forever if, you know, um, and that can become large or small. That's okay. It's just another way of saying that, you know, this is the my hard-earned money and that's how much you're going to get. Now go do something with it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, fair enough. So, whereas you, so would you say that some people who are doing it from the perspective of total value of the portfolio, maybe that's not necessarily the, yeah, maybe that's a different no. way to think about it. That's a different way. I'm not saying anything is wrong or right. Other problem is, as you said, right? I think there's a whole there's a whole portfolio. There's like a 
entire like course on portfolio management, mm. right? You can go to, you, you know, if you go to the CFA curriculum, I guess you'd, you know, you'd get a, you'd have like an entire module on that. I have never read that module. I don't understand that module. <laughs> I'm openly saying I don't care about that module. It doesn't work for me. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. So my module is, well, I've just put stuff into companies I like. I want to keep money in companies I follow. And I don't look at my positions and say, oh, it should be 5% or 8%. Just, you know, it's 5%. Okay, 5%. That's fine. It's 10%. Okay, it's 10%. And it's very laid back. And as I said, I think, I think the point you made is effectively nothing is going to matter that much if you take if you just expand the horizon right and now could i have done better than what i've done maybe but you know what i'm happy with what i've done because my threshold in my family is if i can get 15% per annum that's great and we're not even comparing with the market just 15% per annum because that's like doubling every 5 years that's a lot and if i can do more than that great but 15% is is good so again i think that's where it becomes very personal right i mean that works for us and we're happy with it mm. yeah my complicated think, life yeah and I, I yeah so just to confirm though just to confirm here you've never calculated the efficient frontier of your portfolio i have no you, idea what even that means wh- how about <laughs> <laughs> okay so I, the only thing i the only thing i look at is how much my different portfolios are giving me returns on a one year three year five year and long term basis that's the only thing i look at or as my father would say the only thing i look at is the total value which is actually my my father has got it right you know age sure. does help you says so i look at how much money i've put in then i look at how much money i have and everything in the middle does not matter <laughs> because what really matters is how much you've got how much you put in and that's really the end result and i i'm in i'm with my father here uh, so that's what i look at so he's just looking at returns is what i do look at yeah um, i can tell you the cfa curriculum around portfolio management it's not that much fun so um <laughs> you're not missing out on a lot by by not reading it like it's uh sure you know you got another rules of the game for you can play it but um you, yeah, I mean, you can probably spend your weekend doing something else, uh, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I think, again, this comes back to knowing the difference between being a private investor and being someone that is a financial advisor or even a fund manager. I think a lot of us, and I, I constantly remind our team of this, is, you know, just because a fund manager writes in their letter that they sold a position, that doesn't necessarily mean anything for us. They might say that they sold it on valuation grounds, but they could have sold it for many other reasons, and that's just what they're telling you. And it doesn't and I, mean that the valuation is correct. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, and one of the wonderful things of being, um, you know, being an expert in a field is that you can say things, and your clients think, "Oh, that sounds rational." They seem to know what they're doing, even in difficult situations, which, in some instances, would probably just be smoke and mirrors. And so um, it's important that you make your own decision and you, you are comfortable in that and not necessarily let others guide you because if you do that, you'll end up with a median holding period of 7.4 months or less probably. So, um, which is probably, as both of us were just saying, it's probably not where you want to be for your long-term wealth creation. So fascinating stuff yeah i really enjoy this conversation of um when cell map i know we've got one more topic but we're already at 59 minutes so i don't know uh, what you want to do we should keep that topic for next time but we should, let's do okay. a little we're teaser gonna... saying what that topic is about because that's a very interesting okay. topic as well 
So I'll let you do the teaser. No, no, oh, no, you, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want you, you to want do, the do the teaser. Yep. Okay. So, so we, we, we alluded to this topic um, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about basically when you have really fast growing industries, really valuable and important industries, you know, that could be around for decades to come. How do you identify one winner or multiple winners in that industry as early as you can? And so that's basically what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to give you a framework of how to do those things, how to use what you know to make good security selections, so individual stocks, but also how do you build the portfolio around them? So all that and more coming up on next week's Australian Investors Podcast. How's that for a teaser? That is brilliant. And here's the thing. This is all free stuff, right? Yeah, this is all it. free. Okay. Oh, and one thing we didn't do is we didn't tell people how they can get hold of us. So yes. I'm going to be honors. You can find Owen on Twitter at Owen Rask um, with the O capital and R capital. I don't know whether it makes a difference or not. Does Maybe it make probably. a difference? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't okay. know. But that's why I said O capital and the R capital. Um, come and talk to us on Twitter. Give us ideas. We love, and you know, have questions, uh, you know, send them to us. We, we, we love t- chatting with people. Um, mine is at 7 Imahanti. Um, you want to point them to something that's been happening in the Rask world, where they can find the Rask uh, content, how they can access it. Yeah, sure. So you can head to www.rask.com.au forward slash subscriptions if you want to um, see what we write about, see what the Rask analyst team puts behind the paywall, which is stock recommendations and uh, podcasts and, and a few other things that we put in there, including you know reports and, and guides. And we actually released one last week, which was, um, an investment portfolio guide. So basically, it's like a 15-page checklist for you to self-assess your plan and your goals for long-term wealth creation from the stock market and how you're going to go about doing that. So that's pretty cool too. Uh, that's behind the paywall though. Um, how about you, mate? Can they go to seveninvesting.com and find oh, out more? Subscribe? Yeah. And, you know, so here's a, if you subscribe, you get what's behind the paywall. If you don't subscribe, you have lots of podcasts and articles like the ones, the selling articles in each one of my colleagues. So we have seven advisors and seven investing. You can find each one's um, how they handle selling. Uh, we put these articles out. It's just general, you know, um, articles for people to read. Lots of podcasts and and, mm. uh, and things that we do uh, out there. Um, yeah. And if you want to look, you know, our recs come out on the 1st of October. Uh, there'll be seven recs out. I'm quite excited about my own rec. Uh, I think it's 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 a very interesting, and I found another small, fast-growing company which is profitable. Uh, what are I the chances? Oh, the, the chances are very low, but yeah, I've, I've been actually <laughs> profitable. looking uh, profitable. It actually has net income. <laughs> so so I, I love those when I find them. I say, oh, okay, there's net income here. That is pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a small, fast-growing company. If you're interested, uh, then that, that's going to be behind the paywall. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll do a shout-out. Actually, what uh, Owen manages a, a team of really crack analysts. And some of them are really young, but they are smart and they're really cool. So yeah, check out what they're doing. Um, Thank you, and mate. I, and likewise. Yeah, and I, I like some of them. Some of them, I, I have I at least had the pleasure of working with at least one of them. And and and, and she was a crack analyst. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure really she crack. appreciates that. Yeah, so, so we'll, not, we'll not put we'll not put her name out because we haven't taken permission from her to uh, put her <laughs> name out. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, okay. that's it. That's it. Wonderful. Always, mate. Always a pleasure. So thank you for for joining me and I'm looking forward to doing this next week. Yes, same here.